There was once a rich merchant who had six children, three boys and three girls. The daughters were all handsome, but particularly the youngest. So very beautiful indeed was she that everyone called her Little Beauty, and when she was grown up, nobody called her by any other name, which made her sisters extremely jealous. Once upon a time, in the enchanting halls of Auckland Libraries, there existed a wondrous collection of tales. Among these cherished tomes was the timeless story of Beauty and the Beast, a fable that has endured through four magical centuries. Kia ora, I'm Sue Berman. And I'm Benjamin Brooking. In this episode, we are exploring the tale of Beauty and the Beast through four centuries of different ways of telling the story. At Auckland Libraries, these span special collections, rare books, illustrated, and children's historical collections. In this fabled episode, we are embarking on a journey through the ages. And it is really quite extraordinary for a story to endure through so many years and have so many renditions within one library. We'll learn about their historic context, witness the evolution of writing styles, and marvel at the diverse formats of the books, including some hand-coloured illustrations and really quite exquisite paper engineering, each element adding to the enchantment of the tale. Ko Jane Wild Takuunga. I am Rare Books Curator at the Heritage Collections at Auckland Libraries, Tamaki Pātaka Kōrero. Well, I've got a bit of a beauty in the beast feast, really. We're stepping through four centuries with ten books. The first one was published in 1785. It's volume 26 in 48 volumes that were donated by Sir George Grey. And it's Beauty and the Beast in French. It's 362 pages, so it's clearly not a kid's story. But it's a story that was captured at that time when a lot of the oral folk stories were being documented for the first time. So there's some very famous uh, names, and it's Madame de Villeneuve. From what I can see from our catalogue, Madame de Villeneuve um, made the complex story in 1740, and then it got revised by someone called Madame le Prince de Beaumont in 1756. And they were probably told for many hundreds of years before that. It's a very handsome artefact, really. It's got marbled covers, but we've, it's also got marbled end papers, um, and the, the full text has got marbled edges. The book's um, covers are kind of broken, but the inside of the book is in really beautiful condition. Um, it's clearly not been wrecked by um, children reading it. It hasn't got any pictures, but it has a really nice set of ornaments on the page that is the title page. And, and for this one, it says Histoire de la Belle et la Bête. So it's the history of the Beauty and the Beast. So if this isn't a children's book, what is it? It's a book that I think uh, would have appealed to adults who liked a good story. And I guess at that time, fiction was as interesting as nonfiction. It's really a documentation by, in this case, it's two women who've basically captured it as a, an oral folk tale. Once it's printed, it, it's then gone into the record and then it's, um, we can see through the centuries these different versions have been adapted right down to 
a sort of maybe six-page version to plays and other other kind of versions, yeah. What have you got in front of you now? So this one, 1825 Beauty and the Beast or The Magic Rose, and the title page also says with eight coloured engravings. The title page at that time, 1825, has heaps of information on it. So it says underneath that, a new edition corrected and adapted for juvenile readers of the present times by a lady, full stop. And that was published in London by Dean and Mundy. It was a very tiny book. They called them original toy books, and they were sixpence each, so they were cheap-ish. And the thing that I really like about this one is the fold-out illustrations. So this one really gives you almost like a comic strip of what Beauty and the Beast is about in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight pictures. So you can see you know, the merchant arriving and they're beautifully hand-coloured. And you can see how you know, the beast really is really weird with legs that look like they've got scales on them and claws really at the end of his hands. So he's pretty scary looking. Um, he's not a Disney beast. No, he's just a kind of grotesque, kind of part man, part animal, really. And um, the caption, the merchant imploring the beast to pardon him because the, mer- the merchant has been caught picking a rose for his youngest daughter in the, in the beast's garden. So that's kind of where it, where it all starts. There was once a rich merchant who had six children, three boys and three girls. The daughters were all handsome, but particularly the youngest. So very beautiful indeed was she that everyone called her Little Beauty. And when she was grown up, nobody called her by any other name, which made her sisters extremely jealous. And the whole thing about the sisters is kind of interesting because they become a kind of side story where um, in some versions they're so jealous that they, um, they treat her really badly. You know, we've, we, and we know that from lots of, of fairy tales like Sleeping Beauty and um, others. But these ones, the, the punishment is that they get turned into statues. And there's some really good versions of that in the, in the different ones that we've got in the collection. And the next picture of the beast in the, in the images here has the beast entreating Beauty to become his wife. And he doesn't look quite as scary there, but he's just oversized, you know, he's just like massive compared to her in this very elegant kind of classical pose that she's got at the table. So I think children would have really um, kind of got, got the interest of the story from this and then hopefully... They heard the story read aloud from the, the version that's here, which is not so long. It's, um, it's about 34 pages. The next one here is um, Beauty and the Beast, an entertainment for young people by Miss Corner and embellished by Alfred Crowquill, Esquire. And that was published in 1854. And this one is a play, and it's in rhyming couplets, it is a shame and disgrace to make us live in such a wretched place. What furniture, and then a sanded floor. I shall never be happy any more. The very, very sort of now dated rhyming couplets. And it comes with music. It has quite a few illustrations. 
And in this one, the beast is a bear. And he's actually quite a nice-looking bear. Um, so there's not a lot of characters. And you can see that um, kids would actually be able to perform this play themselves. Just six characters with four attendant fairies, if you've got extra people. But, um, yeah, and, and the beast is like a big teddy bear. So it kind of shows a bit of an evolution of the story, um, which, of course, ends happily. It would have been quite a fun production, I think. I loved I loved children's books myself that had little musical scores. As a kid, you know, either get your recorder out or somehow just... I have never seen that before. Oh, have you not? Yeah. Yeah, and maybe it's changing now that um, children are not always don't always have an instrument handy. I think children don't always. always know how to read music. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's like less, oh. less and less common. Yeah. Once we get to 1887, um, we get Beauty and the Beast by Charles Lamb, and it's a very beautiful edition. Um, it's a kind of square format with this shiny black cover and gold lettering. And they're, they're famous names in the 19th century with Charles Lamb and an introduction by Andrew Lang um, and eight beautiful illustrations. That's what it tells you on the cover. When you get into it, it has quite a formal introduction, so that's clearly for adults. And it's got really nice images, which are fine engravings. And then you get into the, the real nub of the story in this sort of strange poetical phrasing. Saw beauty innocently gay, thus smooth the May-like moments past. Blessed times, but soon by clouds o'ercast. And then you get beauty's song, composed by Mr Whitaker. So you get the, the song with the score so that if you've got an instrument, you can play it or sing it. And then you get really interesting illustrations with the beast looking quite animal-like, not just the teddy bear that we saw in the earlier one. The last one from the 19th century, in this batch of 19th century ones, is called A Long Time Ago. Favourite stories retold by Mrs Oscar Wilde and others. So this is Mrs Oscar Wilde, who was married to the well-known Oscar Wilde. You know, being Mrs Oscar Wilde, she um, would have been actually a name to sell books at that time. In 1891, this was published. And it's it's got a charming cover um, with writing that looks like string to make the, the words a long time ago. And one of the things I like about it is it's got one of these inscriptions from an Auntie Maud. So one of the kind of sidebars with the collection is that they're often books that were donated by aunts. So Auntie Maud gave this to Robbie with love and best wishes in Christmas 1891. And the Beauty and the Beast story Mrs. Oscar Wilde manages to tell in about six pages. Once upon a time, there was a rich merchant who had three daughters, Marigolda, Dressalinda, and Beauty. He was very fond of them all, but he loved Beauty best because she was such a good girl. One day, he lost nearly all his money, and then Dressalinda and Marigolda get grumpy about it, but she's very good. And this has the most gorgeous illustrations of her having a meal with the beast. Beauty and the Beast are sitting cordially at a romantic table setting. 
It's a bit of a bizarre illustration, really. The beast appears to be essentially a bear wearing a tuxedo. Beauty is looking fairly normal. She's got a knife and fork and is about to use them to eat an apple that's sitting on her plate. Beast is holding a wine goblet, and it's a very prim looking setting, aside from the beast bear in the suit, of course. And the beast is terribly polite and says, Good morning, Beauty. I don't want to eat you. The beast said, Will you pour out the coffee for breakfast? And so um, I think Mrs. Oscar Wilde's got a really nice storytelling tone. And this one, when they do marry in the end. So they were married and lived happily ever afterwards and forgave the sisters their spiteful trick and asked them to the wedding. So that's um, everyone ending up pretty well. It doesn't seem to any longer be about Beauty's looks. It seems to be about how her character is. Her name is Beauty, but... Yeah, so it's her, it's her character that makes her different. And I guess that 19th century thing that they're really trying to impress on kids is, you know, be good. The dutiful daughter getting rewarded. But the whole thing is it's still all about looks in the sense that beauty isn't intimidated by the beast. She actually loves him for the person he is, which is a kind and um, kind of attentive, friendly person. So that's some quite subtle kind of indoctrination for kids. So we're through the 19th century and into the 20th. And this book I've chosen, it's Beauty and the Beast, is in in an edition by Charles Perrault, Old Time Stories, but they're illustrated by W. Heath Robinson. And he was known as an illustrator um, for doing kind of far-fetched flying machines, but he's actually a really fine artist. And so I chose this particular one for the illustrations. It's, it's very modern for um, 1921 when this was published and they're part of our illustrated sequence rather than the children's historical sequence. There's the beast, this looks kind of like a, a, an actor um, with, a, with a beast head on, which is um, quite fun really. I don't, th- I don't think you'd be too scared of that beast. Just jumping in to add to Jane's description here. I love this black and white print of the beast. He's illustrated as human, but wearing an oversized mask as the face of the beast. The beast features horns and a lion-like mane as hair with a wolf-like mouth of teeth and whiskers of a cat. So aside from the face of the beast, the body down to the tights and the flouncy shirt be all the hallmarks of a 1920s pantomime actor. And at the end, that I really like beauty, said this lady, who was a celebrated fairy, Come and receive the reward of your noble choice. You preferred merit to either beauty or wit, and you certainly deserve to find these qualities combined in one person. It is your destiny to become a great queen, but I hope that the pomp of royalty will not destroy your virtues. As for you, ladies, she continued, turning to beauty's two sisters, I know your hearts and the malice they harbour. Your doom is to become statues, and under the stone that wraps you round to retain all your feelings, you will stand at the door of your sister's palace, and I can visit no greater punishment upon you than that you will be witnesses of her happiness. Only when you recognise your faults can you return to your present shape, and I am very much afraid you will be statues forever. That's that quite dark. Oh, yeah.
So this one, published in 1950 and illustrated by someone called Roland Pym. It looks like a, an ordinary, quite small format book, but it has little ties and it says at the bottom of the, of the cover that it's a peep show book. And you think, what's a peep show? You put it on the table and open it once and you realise that you can't actually open it just flat on the table. So you, you kind of stand it up and then you can peep into what is the first opening, which is um, like a beautiful scene with a wood and uh, trees and you've got a deer and you've got a squirrel and you've got snow piling up and there's the merchant setting off with his uh, cloak, red cloak, waving in the in the breeze um, and a really lovely black horse that he's riding. Um, and there's a castle when you look into the depth of the book. So with that opening, you get these layers like a kind of stage set with different layers as you're going deeper and deeper into the image. You have got real depth when you look through the windows and look into the, into the sort of distance um, with interiors and exterior scenes. Jane offers a wonderful description of the complex nature of this book, which is really unique and something to see. I love the activation of the book and the boldness of the colours and the painted scenes. This is one I really recommend listeners come in to see. The fun thing is that you're part of a kind of castle opening up, but then you close that first bit of opening and you see that there's a new scene that comes around. And if you've got the book not on your lap, but you've actually got it on a table, you can see that as you open each angle, you can really bring the book together and get um, tie the two blue ribbons that are on, on each cover, tie them together, and then you've actually got the full book opened out 360 degrees with, let me go round one, two, three, four, five, six scenes that are basically telling the full story from the merchant setting off to the last scene, which is the basically the happier, happy ever after moment with the beauty and the beast is now a prince and they've got this sort of beautiful setting um, in the background with swans and fireworks and a lake and a lit up castle. So what you, what you kind of feel invited to do really is just get to know the story and um, you'd probably want to just leave it once you've worked out that you could tie it up and make it into a, a visual tableau, you'd leave it set up like that. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of performative book, which is, a, I guess, a precursor to the pop-up that, that we're used to. And it's just, I think it's wonderful that the paper has stood the test of all of those years. 1950, and it's still in really lovely condition, so I don't know whether whoever gave this to whoever it was, was it was kept on the top shelf, but hopefully it's had some people enjoying it. And the lovely thing about it for here is that we can use it really well in exhibitions. I think, in fact, Roland Pym versions were used in our pop-up book exhibition some years ago. This was published in 1972, Beauty and the Beast by Philippa Pierce. And Philippa Pierce is, um, she's a Carnegie Award winning writer. Tom's Midnight Garden, I think, was the one that she's most famous for. Probably, it's kind of quite a modern interpretation 
of, of the very traditional story. So the beast is saying, and this one I've just opened, you know, by rights I should kill you with one stroke of my paw, but I won't, at least not yet. And there's his face taking up most of the page. The illustrations in this are quite beautiful. This was illustrated by Alan Barrett, who created a series of gouache paintings for the book. They are dark, quite sparsely detailed, and very tonal. They evince a bit of a haunting feeling. It looks like a kind of classic children's book that public libraries from the 1970s were full of, but it is a little bit different in that it's very much based on the traditional French version and really quite subtle illustrations on it. And I guess it just shows how with every generation there's new ways of telling that story and um, making it your own. There's a very um, interesting kind of vignettes with on this opening with the beast on one side and the, and the beauty on the other. Their wedding took place with the greatest magnificence. Beauty's father came to the wedding and wept for joy at his daughter's happiness. Beauty's sisters came too, but so did the good fairy. All three met at the gates of the palace. The good fairy knew the harm that the sisters had done and would do again if they could. Then and there, because of their cold-hearted wickedness, she turned them into statues of marble. There they were to stand on either side of the gates of the enchanted palace until they repented. There they stand forever. They didn't come off so well this time. No redemption for no. them. <laughs> so, you know, just behave yourselves when you are met with adversity, I guess. 2010, we've got the Robert Sabuda pop-up. Robert Sabuda, who's a well-known paper engineer, so he's got the classic fairy tale, and it does have the classic text in it, but he's made it a whole new dimension with the paper engineering. I guess a picture book is kind of 2D experience, and this is a 3D experience. Shall I open it up? And you get even the sound of the, of the castle kind of coming into view is, is pretty impressive. There once lived a rich and kind merchant who had six children, three boys and three girls. So it's the classic text, but in the other, other children's historical books we've got, there's books that, that have little basic elements that will stand up. But paper engineering, I guess, is taking it to a whole new level. Wasn't it amazing when Jane opened the book for us and you could actually hear the book creak into being? Most of us can probably picture a pop-up book. Effectively, the movement of turning and opening the pages enlivens the folds and fixtures of the paper on that page and it moves into a three-dimensional form. This book is particularly complex and brilliant in its design. You really are confronted with the beast as something that you've never seen before. The whole book is the beast's head on this particular opening and it's it's so amazingly articulated. Place this ring on your finger, turn it three times and wish yourself to be home. When you want to return here to the castle, do the same. Farewell, my beauty. And so there are lots of little devices in the story where um, there are kind of magical things, like if you turn the ring three times, you'll go, you know, go back to the other place and that you get transported. And so... Sabuda's made the, made the ring in a very interesting little box. But that's just one kind of, one of many very clever devices that he's done. Can you describe what's happening in that scene? Well, this, this one 
um, is Beauty becoming used to living in the castle and striking up a friendship with the beast. And and the castle is clearly a very social place. So there's seems like hundreds of people in this opening, and um, it's probably the the sort of the 18th century dress of the time when the book was first written down. And it's you know princesses and courtiers and different people. Um, cavorting in the foreground and then there's these massive columns in the background which I guess is showing the um, the gorgeous garden that the castle grounds have. It's just sort of lots of elements in it. The next page has got this formal garden with hedges that will stand up that are the kind of the edge of the of the scene. The centre of the scene is a really amazing kind of garden with plants that are kind of growing into a centre point which looks like a heart at the very top with roses on it and roses are a bit of a theme I guess for the for the beauty story um, but in the centre is the beast lying down possibly dead with beauty throwing herself on him and there's a text that comes up in the panel and, and she's saying no my dear beast you shall not die Beauty said through her tears, I love you with all my heart. Nothing would please me more than to be your wife and to spend the rest of my life with you. So the paper, it's got layers that you can lift up and some more text in it. That scene, it explains instantly the castle was radiated with blinding light as if the stars themselves had fallen from the sky. Beauty's hands flew to shield her eyes from the light. When she could finally lift her head, she saw the beast was gone. So it's this combination of the pop-up mechanisms that show a whole new scene when you lift. The prince, it's almost like he's jumping out of a box, you know. It really is that incredible kind of compression that it's sort of like seeing a, a butterfly come out of a chrysalis, you know. It's just this wonderful sense of him emerging. And then the, you get the drama of that. And then you, because it's got these many layers as a pop-up book, you pull that one down once you've released him and then you get this garden which is full of flowering sort of technicolor roses and there's a, a silhouette against the background of that so that's just another layer in the pop-up and then that's telling you that he's changed from a beast into a prince and there's a garden and there's more text about them getting married the next day in the great hall of the castle so it it's a very very clever um, piece of of design and also just the fact that we've used this quite a few times and the paper engineering is such that it it keeps on working so um, a very wonderful experience to share yeah so um, the last one is published in 2017 and when I went to find this it was actually in a teen lending collection and I can see that it would be a really nice book for teenagers because it's got the text that is the original text. Sort of what does it say on that front cover? It's a very full cover. It says Gabrielle Suzanne Babo de Villeneuve is credited as the author, the most ancient of the published versions of Beauty and the Beast. Then The Beauty and the Beast, lavishly illustrated with interactive elements, illustrated by Minna Lima. And that title page it's a little bit like the 19th century ones that we looked at where they have a heap of information on the title page but this has also got quite a lot of fun with uh, visual elements like monkeys jumping up a chandelier and 
there's a, a scene with the beast which has got a lot of gold detailing on it and another inset with Beauty who's gazing, looks like she might be gazing towards the beast. But the illustrations, there's a design duo from Italy called Minna Lima. They've made a lot of really fun illustrations and they've used things like the tunnel book technique, which means the rooms go on and on and on. And they've also used this thing called a volvel. This is effectively an item in the book which is centred by a pin and that turns or rotates around, often circles within circles as a way of aligning different things to create multiple options. Jane explains how it's put into place in this beauty. So where you've got the lavish and never-ending wardrobes of beauty, you turn it and the volvel means that at the top of each one, the wardrobe is open and you get to see a new dress. So they're very interactive devices. And they're, they're, these are traditional things that have been used in books for hundreds of years. They've got the kind of aged-looking paper and you get a fold-out that is um, going to be a map. I think my favourite is the ring because the ring element where um, the beast says turn the ring three times, this one, you can turn the ring. And so you can either, as you're turning it, it'll either say home and family or it'll say castle and beast. Yeah, so I, th I thought this was really nice because it's, it's really relating back to the Cabinet de Fay or the Cabinet of Fairy Tales that we had in the collection from Grey. Um, and it's now a kind of a modern addition with really, really attractive illustrations and a really a nice format. That, that was a really nice way to show that the story has kind of kept on giving through the centuries. Yeah. So and I went across to Birkenhead Library to talk with children and youth librarian Claire Cudmore-Neem, who, with a team of other librarians, created the Auckland Library's podcast, Look a Book. In the interview, Claire shared her insights and experiences of the role of children's books, and particularly fairy tales, for making sense of the world. Kia ora, I'm Claire. I'm a children and youth librarian at the beautiful Birkenhead Library. Yeah. And here we are. Yeah, here we are. Should we talk about fairy tales a little bit? Love fairy tales. Why are they such a um, perennial thing? So I think maybe... Humans love storytelling. We love shaping our world in stories. We love being scared and we love romance and we love like certain kind of aspects of the human condition. And they're so much easier talked about in story form, you know. Facts, they're good for some people, but they're not as accessible for the general populace. So fairy tales and storytelling is a way to like make information understood. I know my parents manipulated me in very loving ways through storytelling. And even now, actually, I get I get requests, you know, something sad is about to happen in my family or the siblings are fighting and, you know, my son is lonely and then they say, can you find stories? And I never look for the perfect story for that. I just look for as much as possible. And they come to you because you're the children's, children's librarian. librarian. And yeah. usually because I've built relationships with them. Did you know this was going to be a part of your job? No, gosh, no. It was quite flattering to think you can have an influence like that. It just also, something which I already knew, but it was always nice to have a reminder of how important stories are for working through things, making your experiences a bit more shared and then easy to like look at them from different lenses. So 
I was really motivated to help. We're dealing with some pretty heavy topics. One of the ones I looked at was for like bereavement and I was like, hmm, there's a lot of books about it in children's, like, you know, it's a way for them to understand it much better. And even they won't understand it, but they'll understand how other people have processed those emotions and other people have gone through it and, and then that will help them as well on their journey. Are there any requests like that that you feel comfortable talking about that you could talk about that you recall, like what the request was? Yeah, I think the bereavement one was probably one of the more intense ones that I dealt with. It was imminent loss of a family member. They just came up to me here and it was it was a hard conversation because they were upset as well because, you know, it's their family. But they were concerned particularly about their grandson. So... I don't even know if I was too much use, but I imagine they were just putting out all the feelers to prepare themselves. So I just was like, well, I'll have a look. And it was the first time I'd done it. So I've had to work through like, oh, what am I doing exactly here? And then it just had me looking at the collection and reading reviews about, you know, Sally's gone to heaven, which is like a dog in the children's picture books and stuff like that. And I think that's when I sort of was thinking about they may have different you know, personal beliefs, which maybe will affect which stories are relevant for them. So I can see the ones that maybe I would pick in that situation, but I just want to give them as much as possible. And also you never know what's going to resonate with the child. Like when you think about stories and what you, you know, moments that shape you, little comments people said that shaped you, I'm sure the people who said them wouldn't have thought of it as big at all. So you don't know which character, which moment, which feeling is going to be the one that that child or maybe the parent reading it to them latches on to and gives them some thinking or way to process or, yeah, so. Slightly grim orphan stories, aren't they? <laughs> so many. Oh, well, Jacqueline Wilson's a classic. Yep. Fictional stories of divorce and yeah. bad parents and bad friends and bullying and they were good, honestly. My parents got divorced and I read lots of Jacqueline Wilson. <laughs> they were great. I think my colleague said to me her parents, when they divorced, they were like, going to get her to move between houses and she had read The Suitcase Kid and she was like, I'm not being a suitcase kid, thanks to Jacqueline Wilson, and sort of set her own boundaries for how she wanted to be treated. That's quite good. Isn't that cute? Empowering. Yeah. Yeah. Which is sort of just to say it's a way of uh, learning lessons without having to figure it out for yourself entirely. Yes, yeah. Because often lessons are from hard things and you'd prefer not to have to go through them all yourself Mm. to understand them. What do you know about Beauty and the Beast? <laughs> Beauty and the Beast is one of those famous stories retold again and again and again. Have you covered it before? I haven't, no. I also probably should know more about it, but I think just on the surface level, I guess I wonder if there's, a, there's you know, the problems of her being captive and then loving her captor. Like, I feel like that's, yeah, I haven't dissected it and probably that's one of the barriers. I've been kind of like, well, that's that's messed up. Like... No, thank you. One of the books that we had as a child that I loved was a Beauty and the Beast book, but I loved it for the art. Like, I remember she was so beautiful and I was just, I thought she was great. And then all like waxy and twisty and drippy pictures, which I think I really got lost in the imagery of that story. And also mum got me lots of books about like ferocious girls, retellings of the classics. I remember a few that were Beauty and the Beast They weren't necessarily happy though, like often the girl didn't end up in a good state, but she'd be quite ferocious in her response to the situation, more so than just like forgiving and, 
accepting someone who's for their traits, you know, she'd be fight back and steal fur and escape and kill and yeah. It's interesting again I think to realise that lots of the modern YAs are just the classics retold because when I talk to the teenagers about what they're reading, sometimes it is books that I've that I see as a modern retelling but I don't know if they always see it like that themselves which I think is maybe just like an extra layer for them one day when they connect the dots I can just hear them saying what's about this girl and she's stuck with this guy and he's like and I can hear them telling me about Beauty and the Beast without kind of clicking that it's Beauty and the Beast so they captivate the audience and the imagination still coming back to the fairy tales and those sort of stories I feel like Maybe some will reach the end of what they do. But then at a certain point, if something's been in collective history for long enough, I think it has a fascination because it's also a link to history. Fairy tales for humans, you know, like we can look at our history, we can look at the changes in human rights and stuff like that through fairy tales. Like they'll change with us to teach the stories that they want to teach currently and they'll last as kind of ways to look at the history. Why why did you find 10 copies of Beauty and the Beast? What did you find interesting or what did you want to achieve with um, with this collection? Yeah. Well, what I was interested in doing was seeing, it's a bit of a test really, to see whether we could find a well-known story and kind of go back and see how it's evolved and see how it's been handled as a story and also just see how it's represented in the collection why do you think that fairy tales are important? Why do you think that there exists so many copies of the story? Why why is this so prominent? Mm. Yeah, well, I guess fair, there's something about fairy tales that they do have a kind of elemental aspect to them about good and bad and fate and the way things turn out. And you do find them, the same versions, you know, all over the world. Um, different cultures have developed probably versions of Beauty and the Beast, then there's kind of an interesting process where they get kind of released again where you get creativity applied, a good storyteller and a good illustrator. And so those stories that might have been designed to be kind of cautionary tales to make children behave well um, can be a lot of fun and something that um, makes people have a lot of joy It's good for people to be aware that, like, rare books are not just dusty old um, boring things, that they can be quite magical, and they're not necessarily sort of adult, serious books. You know, I think people like, like that kind of once upon a time, a lot of action, and then happily ever after. There's just a lovely format that people can kind of relate to and enjoy. Do you like the story of Beauty and the Beast? I think I do. I mean, I don't, it wasn't one that I knew as well as, say, Sleeping Beauty, but I've enjoyed it in this exercise. It is that classic thing of, you know, don't, don't judge something for what it looks like on the outside. So what was your favourite fairy tale, Sue? Well, I really love all those old fairy tales. It's hard to pick one. I do have fond memories of my granny reading to me from the often rather graphic Grimm's fairy tales. Hansel and Gretel is probably one of my favourites. 
Thanks so much to Rare Brook librarian Jane Wilde and to Claire Cudmore-Neem for sharing your research and giving us so many rich visual insights too. You can find a list of references for this episode in the published notes or get in touch with us by emailing libraryresearch at aucklandcouncil.govt.nz and we'll make sure we can find the collections of your interest. This series is made with Auckland Library's content creation funding and is part of a wider series of short films Nako, the Collections Talk, available to view online. This episode was written and produced by me, Sue Berman. It was recorded and produced by me, Benjamin Brooking. And edited and engineered by me, Juliana Machado. This has been Nako, the Collections Podcast, Beauty and the Beast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear the rest of this series and more from Auckland Libraries.